Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. This is where we answer your Bible questions. Temptation is not sin. It's when we yield ourselves to that thing. That's when it becomes sin. I believe what this is, and I'm going to trust you. So what prophecies were they studying that helped them know when the Messiah would come? That's a good question. And I think we've got a pretty good answer for you here. Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. We're really glad to see you. We've got some Bible questions to get through, questions that have been submitted by It Is Written viewers. And so with that, I'm inviting you to submit a question you might have. Email us, lineuponline at iiw.org, lineuponline at iiw.org. I'm John Bradshaw, and I'm with Wes Peppers. Wes Peppers, great to have you here. Always good to be here, Pastor John. Really thankful for your presence, because together we're going to tackle some important questions. Some good ones. This first one is from Marcus. What happens to a believer's soul if they're caught in a house fire and the body is reduced to ashes with no bones to bury? Where does the soul sleep? How can it be resurrected? Sure. Great question. Thank you, Marcus, for that. Well, the, the sleeping of the soul, or, or sometimes people call it soul sleep, is we have to be careful about how we say that. The Bible says that when the dust of the earth comes together with the breath of God, there is a living soul. When a person dies in any form or fashion, that breath goes back to God who gave it, and the body goes back to the earth to be turned into dust. Is the breath the soul? The breath is not the soul. The okay. breath is the breath. It's, it's like the, the life spark. The life spark, the life source that God gives to that person to make them come alive. And so the combination of that breath, that life spark, and the dust makes the soul together. You find that in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. So we want to make sure that's very careful. Now, God is not dependent upon, Pastor John, that body that went into the ground to be restored. Many people were blown apart in war. Sharks uh, got them. Sharks ate them, whatever it may be. Yeah. But at the end of time, God's going to give us new bodies. And so he's not dependent upon that. So a person might be cremated. They might be destroyed in a house fire. They might be swallowed by a shark. It doesn't matter because they'll get a new body when God, when Jesus returns. That's correct. So the resurrection isn't dependent, as you just said, on the bits and pieces left over? Thank goodness. Uh huh. And what you're asking is, where does the soul sleep? Well, the body's dead. The the person is dead. That's that's the question. What is death? You die. You sleep. You sleep until the resurrection. And we'll leave it with you because, you know, online Bibles and concordances and Googles and things like that can make it very easy for you just to search the word sleep in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, but the Bible. And uh, you search that word, you go, oh my, this king died and slept with his fathers. This king died and slept with his fathers. David has not ascended into the heavens, but his grave is with us to this day. That's right. So the dead sleep. And so the question about, oh, where does the soul go? The soul, you, Marcus, are a soul. The soul is what you are, not what you have. So the living soul becomes a dead soul. The breath, the life spark, God retains that. Your body molders away in the ground. And then Jesus gives you a brand new body at the second coming of Christ. Fantastic news. Okay, do we have a second question? Sure. Um, Alona asks, If Jesus told the thief on the cross, 
Today he would be with them in paradise. How can the dead be sleeping? That's a good question. Great question. Oh, yeah, I love that question. We often get that in uh, live meetings that we hold uh, Always uh, wherever get we are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Why don't we look at it together, Wes? Mm-hmm. Luke chapter 23, late in the chapter. This is what we discover. So uh, Jesus was on the cross, and there were, in verse 39, malefactors with him. One of them rails on him, saying, if you be the Christ, save us. The other's like, no, no, man. Don't you fear God, seeing as we're in the same condemnation? We justly, but this fellow has done nothing in this. And so he, the thief, turns to Jesus, and he says, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now, let's just pause right there. When you come in your kingdom, when was that? Can you remember when that happened, when Jesus came in his kingdom? Well, according to the Bible, he hasn't quite done that yet. So Jesus hasn't returned. That's right. So whatever happens next, we understand the thief wasn't saying, hey, listen, when you die, presumably today or tomorrow, would you remember me? He wasn't saying that. He said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. We're still waiting for that time. So the whole idea of this fellow having gone to heaven at death is just blown out of the water. Uh, Or should I say that difficulty merely melts away or evaporates away like the dew evanesces before the rising sun. It's gone now because we've no, no, no issue. Jesus hasn't come back in his kingdom, so the whole request of the thief is, is it's another matter. Now, but he did go on to say this. Jesus said, Verily I say to thee, today you'll be with me in paradise. Obviously not, because Jesus didn't go to paradise that day. The, the, the thief slept, waiting for the resurrection. First Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, The dead in Christ rise when Jesus returns. He said to the thief, Verily I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. I'm telling you now. It's a quirk of the comma. You know that there are many Bible translations. There are many Bible translations. Mm-hmm. But there is a good number of them that put the comma in the right place. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Not the mainstream That's ones, right. of course. That's right. But uh, numerous that do. Jesus used that phrase many times throughout the Bible. Verily, verily, I say to you today. And he would tell whatever truth he was going to say. So that was just a, a, a reiteration of the t- many times he had done that before. And what fantastic assurance that the thief got. You can know right now. I'm telling you now, hey, Mr. Thief, while you're on the cross, nails in your hands, nails in your feet, you're in great agony. You're going to die. There's no way out of this. But I can tell you right now, in the moment of your great hopelessness, you'll be with me in paradise. That's the assurance Jesus gives to us right now. In spite of your sin, you accept Jesus. You have the assurance in the here and now that you will be with him in paradise. Some people might ask, what does that mean? I can't trust the Bible because that comment was there. Why is it there if it's not correct? Oh, very interesting. Well, what do you say when people ask you that? Well, in the original Greek language, the Bible had no punctuation. It had no commas, and and the sentences would would kind of run together. And so when it was translated into English, it was during the Dark Ages when the popular belief was held that when you die, you go straight to heaven or straight to hell. And so the Bible translators put that comma in that place that reflected that teaching. Does that mean we can't trust the Bible? No. No. Uh, the Bible, the thought is still there. Uh, we just understand that that comma was dropped in the wrong place. You know, also, Bible evidence for this is that when Jesus resurrected, the very first person he appeared to was Mary. And in the garden, she goes and clings to Jesus 
because she's so happy to see him. And Jesus says, touch me not yet, for I have not yet ascended to my father. And so even on the resurrection day, which was a, you know, later in time, Jesus says, I've not yet ascended to my father. So Jesus could not have said, today you will be with me in paradise, because he didn't go to paradise that day either. He went to the grave and he rested. Uh, the Bible says um, there in the rest of chapter 23 and chapter 24 of Luke that he rested in the tomb on the Sabbath and he rose the first day of the week. I heard a, a bright man, a wise man, a theologian. In fact, it was Dr. Alberto Tim who recorded Sabbath School yeah, programs Sabbath for this programs, a while back. Yeah. He said, much theology is autobiographical. That's interesting. Isn't it just? Yeah. You listen to people espousing theology, and a lot of the time it's right. Mm-hmm. That's autobiographical. Yes. It's coming from your experience. It's really difficult to separate that out. So when they translated the Bible, they translated the Bible in some places due to their experience. Where do we put the comma? Well, it sounds yeah. like it goes there because yeah. it wasn't in the original. And then you get into theology about sin and righteousness and so forth, and you go, hmm, some of that theology is autobiographical. Yeah. You know what we want? We don't want, we don't want autobiographical theology. We want biblical theology. And that takes some honesty where you say, God, simply lead me according to your word and your will. Okay, Ricky asks us this question, Wes. Can you explain the special resurrection of those who were responsible for Jesus' crucifixion? Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Revelation 1 verse 7, Jesus said, Behold, he cometh with clouds, every eye will see him, even they or and those who pierced him. Yes. Oh, so what's yes. that about? Yeah. So the Bible talks about that special resurrection in John chapter 1. I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 1. And those that pierce Jesus will see him. We don't know exactly how that's going to happen yeah. and how that's going to, what that's going to look like. But Jesus makes that declaration, or the Bible does, that those who pierced him will also see him when he comes in the clouds of heaven. So it appears to be that there would be some kind of special resurrection of those that are coming up who... Uh, who pierced him, who will yeah. see him coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, Jesus spoke to this. He was talking to Caiaphas, and you've got it written in Matthew twenty six sixty four. Yes. I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Mm-hmm. So some of these people responsible for his death, I mean, get, look at the big picture. Yeah. Jesus is coming back. There were people who put him to death as a criminal and as yes. the scum of the earth, and Jesus wants them to realize, oh, he truly was that's the divine right. son of God. That's a very, uh, you know, what a shock it's going to be for them. They're going to see that and they're they're just going to be blown away that we put this man on a cross, but here he is in the clouds of heaven with a glorified body, a crown on his head, white robes, riding a horse, coming in the clouds of heaven with all the angels of heaven. What a sight that's going to be. There's going to be some shock going on with those people. Oh, yeah. Lisa asks us a question about Jacob and Esau. Well, it's really about God, actually. Before Jacob and Esau were born, God said he hated Esau. So why did he create him? Yeah. God's hating Esau? What's up with that? Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes the Bible will give verbiage that insinuates, that may seem like one thing, but when you look into it a little more closely, it was something else. I... I don't think that God hated Esau. Certainly he hated his sin and many of his actions, 
but that God uh, had chosen, uh, ultimately, Jacob, his brother, to be the chosen one that would be the heir of Christ. And so, yeah, God, I don't think, hates anybody. He hates sin. He hates evil. And when we choose that in our life, he hates those actions, and he's always seeking to deliver us from them. But God would not have hated Esau any more than he would hate anyone else. He loves us, but he hates the sin within us, and he wants to take that away. At the same time, there were two sons. One was preferred. Yes, one was preferred. As the, as the heir, the one who would receive the birthright. Yes. And one was not preferred as the one who would receive the birthright. And uh, this is a way of explaining. Look, there's two. Typically, the elder would receive the birthright. In this case, it's the younger. Well, why? Because the one I preferred and the one I hated. Well, wait, wait. Not hated as in Didn't you, like them. you hate Brussels sprouts or you... I'm not going to say a person because, of course, you'd never hate a person, would you? Uh, it's not that. I preferred this. This is my choice. The other fellow I did not preserve. Uh, sorry, prefer. He was not my choice. Yes. And so God uses those words, even though it's kind of provocative. Well, it's not even God using the words, but the Bible using the words. Let me put it that way. And it's to help us to understand a, a certain reality. It's also important to note that Esau did not want that blessing. That's right. That's he right. was not interested in it, yeah. and so God moved on. Yeah, so 100%. He kind of rejected God first. We'd love to get your Bible questions. If you have some, even one, email them to us, lineuponline at iiw.org. And we'll be back with more Line Upon Line in just a moment. When a 2,000-ton span on a bridge in Melbourne, Australia collapsed during construction, the damage and loss of life were devastating. When a bridge collapsed in Tasmania five years later, it was another catastrophe that caused disruption and death. So what happens when you fall, when sin takes you down, when failure shakes your experience with God? Don't miss Free Fall, brought to you by It Is Written TV. Find out what you can do when you've fallen again. And find out how God treats those who have strayed, wandered, failed, fallen. There is hope when you've messed up. There's a future when life isn't going like it should. There's a way forward when you feel like you've failed God or failed others. Free Fall, filmed on location in Australia. Don't miss Free Fall on It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written with Wes Peppers. I am John Bradshaw, and Marcy asks this question. Can you explain the difference between the resurrection for believers and the resurrection for non-believers? How about that? Yeah, thank you, Marcy, for that question. There is, you're, you're very perceptive to notice this, but there are two resurrections that the Bible speaks about, the resurrection of life and the resurrection of condemnation or damnation, as some versions refer to it. But I'm going to point us to John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, because Jesus actually speaks about this. He says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So there are two resurrections of life and damnation. And Revelation chapter 20 tells us when those resurrections will take place. Let me read that yeah, to you. I've got them right that? here. Mm-hmm. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, it's speaking about the saved. 
And it says they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They were resurrected, you understand, and so they're with Jesus during the millennium. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Mm -hmm. Verse 6, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. Two resurrections, two groups of people. Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ rise. The lost, they're asleep. He doesn't even wake them up. At the end of the millennium, the lost are awoken and they realize they're in the wrong place. Yeah, that's right. And Daniel spoke of this as well. In Daniel chapter 12, he speaks about those who awake from out of the dust, some to life, some to everlasting destruction. So this is a a consistent teaching throughout the scripture. Love this question. I've, I've spoken about this many times. Leah asks us, why did God seek to kill Moses in the book of Exodus? That seems like it came out of the blue. A uh, lovely turn of phrase. It kind of does seem it, doesn't it? And, and I'm absolutely certain that there are people watching us right now who go, what? God yeah. sought to kill yeah. Moses? Yes, Moses is the man God tried to kill. Right. And uh, we're going to read to you about this in Exodus, and I believe it's in Exodus chapter 4. Now let's turn to Exodus chapter 4 and see if we can get some background here. Moses is God's man. He's been called by God to go down to Egypt and lead the Exodus. You've got to understand how important that is. He's God's man to lead God's people. He's got to be an example. Mm -hmm. We know how important his example is because at the end of his life, why did he die? Because he, he, he really committed this rash action in front of God's people. And God said, I can't sanction that. I can't have you go into the promised land leading my people after you've done that. They've got to know that what you did, you crossed a line. Mm -hmm. So later on, he did take his life because of a rash act. He's helping him to understand here that no rash acts or no impetuous acts or no acts of disobedience because you are going to be leading my people. You're going to be the shepherd of my sheep, Moses. I need the very best from you. So we read in Exodus 4, verse 19, The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go, return into Egypt, for all the men are dead which sought thy life. Moses took his wife and his sons and set them upon an ass, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you go to return to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. And away he went. Verse 24, It came to pass by the way in the inn that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. You know, kind of right in what you said, that seemed to come out of the blue. Moses, what would Charlton Heston have done if God had followed through and taken the life of Moses? There would have been no Moses Ten Commandments movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what was it all about? We're told in the next verse, then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son, and cast it at his feet, and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. So he, God, let him, Moses, go. Moses hadn't performed the sign of the covenant upon his own son, hadn't circumcised his boy. Now, back then it was mandatory. Today it's not mandatory. It's optional. Do what you think works for you and your family. But this was to be a sign of the covenant. And a sign of obedience and fidelity. You might say that's a small thing. God cares about the small things. And it was actually a really big thing that Moses, God's man, would go down to Egypt to lead God's people while he had this act of disobedience hanging over his head. 
So it really wasn't from out of the blue at all. That's God saying, I care about the things I care about. And when I've said that you really ought to, you really ought to. And it really matters. And your example matters. And I've called you. And down here in the close of time, God has called us to be kings and priests. Our example matters. We ought to care about the little things. That's right. And, you know, it was his wife that really kind of saved him there. And she knew exactly what the trouble was. And, uh, you know, thankfully that was taken care of. And, you know, it, it goes to the, it, it does ex- emphasize the importance of small things and that, you know, not that the Lord is going to seek to take our life every time we don't that's do a right. little thing. That's right, that's right. But at the same time, it's the seriousness of it, the importance of it. So let's not take God's word lightly. Let's make sure that we understand that when God says something, he says it for a reason and he means it. 100%. Maria is asking a sensitive question. I would like to ask how I could get past the pain I'm going through right now. My stepdad is addicted to sex and drugs, and I don't know what to do. Well, Maria, I don't know your age, so I don't know how much agency you have. I mean, do you, you, do you live in the home? Do you have a car? Do you have a job? Are you somewhat independent? If you're in danger, you've got to get out of there. You've got to get to a safe place. Maybe you're not in danger. You've got to talk to some trusted counselors, get some good advice. Your welfare is paramount here, and you don't want to put yourself in harm's way. Maybe you have children. You've got to make sure that they are not jeopardized by the actions of your stepfather. But what we're really encouraged about is that what you've said clearly is that your stepdad is going through some stuff, and, and you'd like to help. And uh, it's causing you some pain as you deal with this. Uh, where do we start with this, Wes? Yeah. First of all, I would say uh, we want you to know that God feels your pain as well. That when you watch your stepdad going through that, God sees it too. And when your heart hurts, he's hurting. When you're crying, he's weeping. And so God, Jesus identifies with that. And so the second thing is, is that you know that God has the power to help him. And he has to make the choice to be able to uh, allow God to do that. And you can't feel guilty if your stepdad doesn't do that. It's got to be his choice. And so you don't need to carry that guilt that is his responsibility. But you want to do all that you can. You want to reveal Jesus to him in your life. You want to be a good example to him. You want to encourage him in the right thing without you know, you know, know, frustrating him, not forcefully so, but sweetly so, and do all that you can to be the right influence. And it may be that you just go straight to him and say, I'm concerned about you. I love you. I'm concerned about you. I want to see you well. And so I want to encourage you to break free from this, and God can help you. And so be that example. And those are just a few things that, as a start, you can do. He may need to have professional help, and you may need to help him get that. Sometimes people that need professional help don't always realize they do, and so that may be a process, but do what you can. Pray. Mm-hmm. Offer help. Offer encouragement. Don't throw gasoline on a fire. You don't know, you know, to wind a man up or, or, or so forth. But we're encouraged that you care and you need to know that God loves your stepdad and he's working and he'll continue to work. Okay, here's a question from Brenda. In the Old Testament, when people sinned, the Lord destroyed all the family. Well, there were, there, 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 <laughs> there were times, Brenda. There were times. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and, and Achan, but... God didn't wipe out the family of every sinner. If he had, 
then there'd be nobody left. These were these were special times, um, drastic times, and uh, we don't want to say that this was what God did right, left, and center. So first thing, we want to keep that in mind. Will this also happen in the last days, even if you are saved and your family is not? It's bothered me because I love my family. I want all my family and friends to be in the kingdom of heaven. How can I convince them that Jesus is coming back? They need to read the word and that they need to read the word and obey his commandments. Uh, what God doesn't do is wipe people out simply because they are in a family. He doesn't cause people to be lost. Uh, people are saved and lost based on what they do with the information they have with the, uh, based on the decisions that they make. So you can be sure that your salvation doesn't mean they're lost. Their lostness doesn't affect you and cause you to be lost. Everybody stands or falls based on what they do with Jesus. So your question is, how can I get them to read the word, to know Jesus is coming back and obey his commandments? Number one, I'm going to say, pray and pray and pray and don't stop praying and claim the promises of God. What are you going to add to that? Yeah, I'll add, you know, I think of a text in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. It says, truly in these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men, and I would add women, everywhere to repent. So there's a sense of individuality that every person is making their own choice. In Corinthians, it says that we are all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to answer for the things done in the body. And so the Bible pretty consistently declares that every individual is responsible to God for themselves. And so you can take hope in that, uh, that just because of one thing one person may do doesn't mean the whole family. Like Pastor John said, those examples in the Old Testament were just that. They were specific, special circumstances. It was not a principle or an application for all. So we are individually saved and individually individually accountable to God. Stephen asks our final question. And uh, I recall that in recent times we've really answered this question several times. But the reason we're going to answer it again is because it's clearly a question that a lot of people struggle with and wrestle with. So... Here's Stephen's question. We don't have a lot of time, but I don't think we need a lot of time. I went to a church in my youth, but was disenchanted by the sermons that lacked any real substance. Well, that's sure. I finally found more truth and was baptized into a commandment-keeping church. I haven't lived a perfect life, but I'm headed in the right direction. Why don't I have peace? And why is my life still hard if I'm trying to follow Jesus? I say, okay, I will challenge you on the peace thing. If you have Jesus, you ought to have some measure of peace. You know that you have the gift of eternal life. Your sins are forgiven. You are headed, in your own words, in the right direction. That's something that ought to bring you some measure of peace. So believe, believe you're saved, believe you have Christ, believe your sins are forgiven. There's some peace there. But let's get down to this in in the few seconds we have. Why is my life still hard if I'm trying to follow Jesus? Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. Just because we follow Jesus doesn't mean we're going to have it easy. The Bible says all who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's in Timothy. And so we have to remember that just because we follow Jesus, Jesus never promises things to be easy. He said he'd give us strength and victory. Even Paul said, three times I asked for this thing to depart from me, this thorn in the flesh. And Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced death for not bowing down before an image. Daniel went in the lion's den. That's right. Uh, Daniel Noah went chapter, through the flood. Noah went through the flood. Daniel chapter 2, there was death decree on all of them. Mm-hmm. Hey, it can be tough being a Christian. It's, it's pretty tough. The devil aims all of his arrows at you. But hang on to Jesus. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound, and Jesus will do his work in you. Hang in there. You're growing. Keep your eyes on Jesus and keep growing. Amen. 
Hey, thanks for joining us today. This has been great fun. Thank you, Wes. Yes. With Wes Peppers, I'm John Bradshaw. This has been Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written.